As we said, we are returning back to the book of Romans uh, this morning. Uh, we are in chapter 9. We'll be finishing up chapter 9 this morning. We're going to focus on verses 29 uh, through 33. So we'll let me read those first, and then we're going to go back and work through these in detail to some degree. What shall we say then? Just remember, this is one of those rhetorical questions based upon what Paul has just said. He knows that people are going to have thoughts in their mind. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Has anyone here been to Bryce Canyon in Utah? Gorgeous, isn't it? Uh, it's probably not as well known as some of the other parks around. Zion Canyon's not very far away. Bryce Canyon's not near as big, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But it's a very unique place because it's noted for having these columns of rock that form naturally. And when you see them, it reminded me of when I was a kid. You know, my grandparents had a house at the beach, and we were always down on the beach in the summertime, and very often we were making sandcastles. And, and you've probably done this before. We can take the mud from the sand and kind of dribble it down and build up things like that. That's how these, these columns at Rice Canyon look. It's like the hand of God did the thing that we do with the beach sand to build those columns. But Matthew and I were there a few years ago, and uh, it was one of those places I always wanted to go to, but I don't get out that way very often. And we decided to go there, and we're there, you know, and there's a, there's, a, there's a rim around the top of the canyon, and you're looking down on all of this, and there's kind of a rough crew trail around the top of it with no rails or anything for uh, those people who uh, are, want to venture out there and, and to walk around. Now, there are railed-off areas where other people can go, but, uh, but this is open for anybody and everybody. So Matthew and I start going on this trail, and you know, I'm looking around. There are all these loose pebbles all over the place. You know, there, there are rocks protruding out of the ground that look like trip agents for me, you know, and that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not as sure-footed as I used to be. I'm not too sure I ought to be doing this. Uh, so anyway, much to his dismay, we decided not to do that. Uh, but no one wants to stumble over something that is going to end in their death because that would have been a matter of certain death you're not going to fall to the bottom of this canyon without hitting rocks on the way down and this that, and the other and it was several hundred feet to the bottom so no way of surviving it but I was thinking about that this morning or this week as I was preparing for uh, this sermon that uh, that as we go through life that there are all kinds of things that would fall in our way that would cause us to stumble and maybe in some ways uh, to stumble uh, in a way that would mean eternal death for us in other words not something that's just temporary but something that is eternal we stumble we stumble through life 
It's true for every single one of us. Christians stumble. We do it on a regular basis. We all have these besetting sins. Sins that we're aware of. And let me tell you, there are a lot of sins that we have that we're not even aware of. We're totally oblivious to a large percentage of our sin. We don't even see it. We don't smell it. We don't feel it. We don't have any sense of it. But we all know that there are particular sins that we seem to really struggle with. And every now and then we'll think that we've been in the battle of putting it to death. And we'll think, gosh, I finally got to the point it's not an issue anymore. And the next thing you know, you're doing it all over again. Why does God allow those stumbling blocks to be in our path? Well, I would say for a lot of reasons, but one of those is to remind us of who he is and who we are. We are people that are absolutely and totally dependent upon him for everything. We cannot, we do not have the ability of ourselves to even overcome the sin in our own heart. Only he does. Maybe the best way of describing the life as a Christian is somebody stumbling through life. It's not this steady up, up, uh, uphill incline. With, with, you know, it's perfectly smooth without any ruts and stones and pebbles that might cause us to trip and fall and that sort of thing. But we can have confidence even in the midst of all of this that even though we fall sometimes, God will always be there to pick us up. He will always lay hold of us and he will always move us forward. The thing that Paul is dealing with here is this. Is if you go back a few verses, first of all, he quotes from Hosea. And, and what his purpose in quoting that uh, quotation is this, is, is to prove that it has always been in the mind of God. This is nothing, something that just came along somewhere down the way. But it was always God's intention to not only save some of the Jewish people, but to also save some Gentiles. Very often people look upon the New Testament church, the, being predominantly Gentile, is kind of the second thought of God. Well, maybe I, I tried this with Israel and it didn't work, so maybe I should open up other people and maybe I'll get some reaction there. But I want you to understand something. That the church that we're in today, is it predominantly Israelite, Jewish, or is it predominantly Gentile? It's very much predominantly Gentile. But I want you to know that's not a mistake. It's because this is what God's intention was all along. His purpose. Many times those people who were not called his people would become his people. According to his doing. The second passage that he's quoted, he quotes, is from Isaiah chapter 27. And the purpose of that is to demonstrate that it was also never God's intention to save all of Israel. Only a remnant out of the Jewish people was God going to save. The Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Quickly. 
Verse 30, we get another one of those questions. Paul's just been anticipating question after question after question. We're going through Romans. He's written particular things. He's uh, teaching a particular thing that he knows that people are going to struggle with. So he sometimes answers those questions, and sometimes he basically says, you know what, that's not a question I can answer because God hasn't given us that answer. But very often, Paul is doing it because he is, he, he, he is preventing people from coming to the wrong conclusions about what he's taught. He does it over and over and over again, which tells us something. There's some really difficult material in the book of Romans. There really is. There's all kinds of side trails that people could easily go off on reading into into what Paul writes, particular things that are not Paul's intention. He gives us this roadmap with all of these questions through here to make sure that we are understanding what he is teaching and what he's not. And it's not in a pattern that's just unique to Romans. You find this all over Scripture. It's just more apparent here in the book of Romans. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? First of all, I want to remind us of this, and that is that everyone that is saved is saved based upon the law of God. In other words, for anyone to be saved, his law must perfectly and absolutely be fulfilled in every instance. When Jesus came into the world, the Jewish people were fractured. There were a lot of people who go by the title Jew, but when it came to all kinds of things, they had big differences with one another. In other words, the Jewish people, were, they were not these folks who were strongly and greatly united to one another. There were all kinds of factions and disagreements within the Jewish community. And we see that demonstrated in all of the different groups, religious groups, and people in religious authority and etc. that you find in, in, in Israel in the days when Jesus came into this world. See the Sadducees, you know, they were the they were the priestly sect. Now, you know, their their focus of everything was on the temple and temple worship and Uh, and all of that sort of thing. But at the same time, there was this other group called the Pharisees whose focus was on the synagogue, places of teaching where they taught the word more to the people. But let me just say it wasn't really so much the word of God as it was the rabbinic law. In other words, the rabbi's interpretation of the Bible that they taught to people. 
But there were others. But, but, but if you think about the, the, the last week in particular of the life of Jesus, you know, during that Passover week, that all these different representatives were all these different groups. There were, were the Herodians who were, people, who were Jewish people who really supported, supported the, uh, the dynasty of the Herods. Uh, but they all came to him and they tried to discredit him by catching him in word traps and that sort of thing and they all failed miserably. This, I read from John this morning that Jesus came to his own. Who were his own? His own were the Jewish people. And even though there were Jews who accepted Jesus, the majority of Jews did not. They did not receive the Messiah that, that, that God sent to redeem them, not from the Romans, from their own sin. Again, as we said before, as we studied through, through uh, Romans, as you see the pattern, it brings us to attention to the Old Testament pattern, and that is, you know, God working specifically and particularly in the lives of certain people, and very often not the people that you would expect. Very often the people that you would least expect. The New Testament church, Paul describes uh, in, in Corinth, basically the ones he's called are the people that that most people thought were least likely. That's you. I know for me that when I became a believer, there were a lot of people who were just flat dumbfounded. Really? Kind of surprised me. Was I really that bad? Was I really that awful? that it would shock so many people that I became a believer. You've heard me say this before. One of my very best friends who was a believer told me, he said, you're the last person on the face of the earth I ever thought would come to faith. And he was one of the people, principal people who witnessed to me. He thought I was hopeless. But he did it nonetheless. I hope you have people in your own life that fit in that category. It's so easy for us sometimes to say, you know what, so-and-so is such a nice person, they would make a great Christian. What we're really thinking is it'll be a whole lot easier to minister or to evangelize them because we know they're not going to be as aggressively uh, in opposition to us as other people might be. In other words, we see them more as easy marks because they're already kind of nice people, gracious people maybe to some degree. They'll at least listen to what we have to say without being nasty about it. I would imagine that for just about everyone in this room, when you became a believer, it shocked some people. Some of you, and there's only a few of you, can, can, can never remember a time when you were not a believer. There's some people that fit in this category. Most people that come to faith, that's not them that they will live apart from God for a while. The problem with Israel is they failed 
to actually see the purpose God had given them, the law. They believed that, law, that God had given them the law to provide them for the means by which they could save themselves. They were arrogant enough to believe that they actually had the ability to do that. They missed one of the primary and principal purposes of the law, and, the, and that was to show us the blackness and the darkness of our own heart and to show us that as much as maybe we desire to be, we are not righteous of ourselves, none of us. Just remember, Paul has said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, it makes not one whit of difference. You have all sinned. You have all fallen glory of the short of, fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for everyone, whether you have Jewish descent or Gentile descent. All of us. They believed that it was by the law that they had the ability to actually gain God's favor of themselves. And just remember, Paul was the zealot among the zealots. Before he became a believer, that's what Paul believed. Paul believed that he was right before God because of himself, because of what he had done. It was only when he was humbled by Jesus Christ our Lord on that road to Damascus that the blinders fell off and Paul saw himself as he really was. A dirty, rotten sinner who desperately needed a savior. That's one of the primary purposes that God has given. Do you think God thinks for one minute that we're going to keep his law perfectly? Is God sitting up there in heaven going, gosh, I don't know what, I can't say anything. Uh, I really thought he was going to do it. I really thought she was the one. Boy, I'm disappointed in so-and-so because I really had confidence in them to do what everyone else has not done. I mean, things have unfolded exactly the way that God not only knew they would, but God determined that they would. He is absolutely sovereign in everything and coronaviruses, and everything else. He is also sovereign in matters of salvation. And let me tell you something. If we study through the book of Romans, and we don't understand that, we have not understood the book of Romans. God is almighty. God has foreordained everything that comes to pass, whether they be matters of salvation or anything else. The only thing you and I are seeing is his predetermined plan unfolding according to his means, his mechanisms, and his perfect will and purpose. Everything in the minutest detail. 
It has to be so. No one has ever or ever will be saved by their own keeping of the law of God. It has not happened. It will not happen. Except for one person. Jesus Christ. He's the keeper. He's the perfect keeper. He's the absolute keeper. He's, in fact, the law himself. He's, in fact, the author of the law that he kept. He has done it for us. What we can't do, and let's be honest, what we really don't even want to do. That's what it means to be our Savior. Not so much to save us from sin, but to save us from ourselves. And the sin then indwells all of us. Paul quotes Psalm 118. Behold, I lay as, uh, in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in me will not be disappointed. There are many things in life that will cause us to stumble. Rocks, pebbles. I mean, we can stumble physically. I don't know how many times you've fallen. We all have. You know, one time or another, physically. Sometimes we do damage to ourselves by doing that. The threat becomes greater as we get older and we become more feeble. Falling and really hurting ourselves. But there are other ways of stumbling and there are other ways of falling and they have to do with sin. We've all stumbled, stumbled over sin and we've all fallen because of sin. We don't have the wherewithal to pick ourselves up from it. But God has reached out his hand and taken hold of us and brought us to our feet. And he will keep us there. What was it that the Jews stumbled over? Well, they stumbled over the law for one thing. They really did not understand all of God's purposes in the law. Matter of fact, they didn't, they didn't understand the most important purpose of God's law. To convict us of our sin and our need for a Savior. Ultimately, the stumbling stone is Jesus. What Paul is saying is that 
people will stumble over Jesus. Jesus is this stone. Sometimes he's described as the cornerstone. Sometimes he's described as the capstone. That which supports everything above it. That which holds everything below it together. This is Jesus. So what Paul is bringing to attention here very often is that people stumble over Jesus himself. That he's a stumbling stone for people. And what do stones very often do? They bring people to their knees where they need to be before a mighty and holy God. Again, what he's saying here is that the Jews, Israel as a whole, stumbled but they didn't get up. They stayed down. Except for those that God lifted up, raised up from their knees. Those who were truly saved by the stumbling stone. In other places, he's described as a rock of offense. In other words, he's offensive. Jesus is downright offensive to some people. Sophocles was very offensive to a lot of the Jews, especially the Jews in leadership. In the days when he walked upon this earth. There are a lot of people out there in the world today that are stumbling over Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. They have no idea what to do with him. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Romans, which was first published in 2009, he writes this in regard to the passage we're talking about. He said, I venture to say that at least 80% of Christian church members in our country believe they can get to heaven through their own good works. You understand that the message that we're talking about this morning is not only a message that the world needs to hear, this is a message that the church in large needs to hear. We know this. We've talked about the distinction that's made between the visible church, and that is the church that God sees it. Those people he knows truly are his. Those people that Jesus came and lived for. Those people who Jesus came and died for. Those people who Jesus was resurrected for. Those people for whom Jesus has ascended into heaven for now and is their heavenly advocate as we speak right now. But we also know this, that from his parables, Jesus teaches us that the church is not absolutely pure. 
that there are people in the church who claim to be believers, and let me just tell you, there's some of them, if you ask them what it meant to believe, or the, quest, the answer they gave you would tell you right off the bat, they're not believers. If you ever talk to anyone, if you ever share the gospel with someone, they start going on and on about all their good deeds, let me tell you something, they don't get it. They just simply don't. tells you that they have been broken by their sin. They don't know that they need a Savior. Ever hear the social gospel? This is something that's really propagated in the world today, and there are a lot of churches that follow the social gospel, and it's, it's the idea that really we don't need a Savior. Jesus is not the Savior. God didn't send Jesus into the world to be a Savior. He sent Jesus in the world to be a good person, to show us what we're supposed to be like so we can earn our way to heaven. So how do you get to heaven? You be like Jesus. You do the things that Jesus did. You say the things that Jesus said. I'm telling you, friends, this morning that there's a huge percentage out there among people who would claim to be Christians, and that's what they think the gospel is. They know nothing at all of the gospel of grace. Either because no one's ever shared it with them, even the person that's preaching to them this morning... Or because maybe they've heard it, but they don't believe it. Let me tell you, anytime you start talking to someone and they, and, and they begin to build their case for what a good person they are, they don't have it. They don't understand it. They don't understand what grace is. They don't understand what faith is. They don't understand at all who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there was a time, and I don't think it's certainly not so true today, there was a time when people almost made the equivalence of being an American as also being a Christian. It's obviously not so clear anymore because of immigration and other religions that have come here you know, and, and have large followings in the United States now and whatever. But there was a time when people believed almost basically, if you're American, you're a Christian. Still today, if you walk down the street and just stop people at random and ask them what, for what religion they follow, the vast majority would still tell you that they're Christians or that they follow Jesus. They start digging into their lives, or you start asking them some probing questions, you'll find out they, you know, church stuff. I don't really do that. You know, you don't have to do, you don't have to go to church to be a believer. Even though God has said that you shall, we shall worship him, right? Clear pattern in scripture. And I'll say this to you this morning. One of the things that I was really struggling with is, was this coronavirus was this. I felt like I had been put in a position where I was telling people they could not do something that God, in fact, told them to do. And I was not willing to stay there. 
That's why I emphasized from the very beginning, I really believe that this needed to be a decision that each individual believer made themselves, not a decision that the leadership in the church made for them. There has to be some place in here where the conviction of the Holy Spirit enters into this picture. Am I going to be telling God, or am I going to be telling people, you cannot come to worship when the Holy Spirit is telling them, you need to come. That's where I want you to be. We need to be very cautious about jumping on the bandwagon when it comes to things like that. Yes, we're supposed to be submissive to the governing authorities. We need to. And let me tell you, if they'd ever passed a law that said you cannot meet this Sunday, that would have been a, maybe a little different picture than it was. They gave us guidelines. They gave us things, things be encouraged to do this and practice that so we can minimize the effect of this virus. We have the constitutionally protected right to do what we are doing here this morning. We do. You understand that this stuff is messing around with our Constitution that our mothers and our fathers died to defend so that we would have the ultimate and absolute right to do what we're doing here today without government interference, period. And it's a choice that we all make. Every one of us. So are you stumbling? Well, let me just say another few things. I know I'm running a little long this morning, but you have to be, understand, I could, sometimes, I could probably preach for two or three hours. So, so if, even if I preach for a whole hour, then I'm really restraining myself a great deal. You need to understand that. That's true of any given Sunday. And by saying that, I lost my train of thought. And I had something really, really good to say. Times like this, we'll do one or two things. They will either weaken the church of Jesus Christ or they will strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we all ought to be praying for, and there are all kinds of things we need to be praying for during this particular time, and one of those is this, is on the other end of it, the other side of it, the church will be strengthened as a result of it. That the faith of, the, of, of believers would increase, that it would grow That the church would expand. This is a prime opportunity for evangelism. It's not a time for us to sit and be silent. 
It's a time when the message needs to go out. And, and, and with all confidence, we can understand something you know, on the other side of this, partly as a result of it, that there will be people in the kingdom who were not at the beginning of it. But that's only going to happen if Christians reach out with the message of the gospel in the midst of this. God's given us a mission, and that is to stand for him, regardless of the situation or circumstance we find ourselves in. There are people that you know, there are people that I know that desperately need to hear about Christ Jesus, and we don't know what God's going to do with it. He doesn't call us to convert anyone. You do not have the power to convert anyone to Christianity. Some people seem to think you do. You don't. You cannot breathe life into that which is dead. Period. Only God can do that. But very often, he uses you. He uses your life. He uses your words. He uses your lips. He uses your voice to tell people. And the only thing you're telling people is what you know, what God has made known to you. Not with arrogance, not with a condescending manner or tone, but someone who knows where that other person is because you've been there yourself. A person who knows that even though maybe you've been a believer for a very long time, even now you know that you're not squeaky clean of yourself. Jesus, the stumbling stone. When we think of stones, we think of hard, strong, heavy Jesus is the stone that is meek and gentle. The stone that picks up people when they fall, when they stumble. I just got my thought back and then it left me again. I guess it's not that important. Maybe next week I'll remember. Let me tell you, Romans is so good. It's so rich. It's so, I, I, I really believe we could spend the rest of our lives doing nothing but studying Romans. My challenge for you and the challenge for me is this, is once we finish, it's not to forget about it. It's to just go back to it over and over and over and over again. It's a great book. It's a challenging book. It stretches us where we need to be stretched. Thank God for it.